0: following episode is brought to you by the American Urological Association. The American Urological Association is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. For more information on how to claim CME credit or to view faculty disclosures, please visit the AUA University at auanet.org university.
1: This series is
0: supported by independent educational grants from Estelis, AstraZeneca, Janssen Biotech, Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, Lantheus Medical Imaging, Merck & Co., Inc., Pfizer, Inc., and Sanofi Genzyme.
1: Hi, my name is Jay Rahman, and I'm a professor of urology at Penn State Health and chair of the AUA's Office of Education. Uh, It's a pleasure for me to host another one of our Office of Education uh, podcasts, with this specific podcast being part of our Expert Exchange podcast series on genitourinary cancers. Today's show title is Systemic Therapies for Metastatic Hormone-Sensitive Prostate Cancer and Castrate-Resistant Prostate Cancer, and it's my pleasure to have two guests who are real thought leaders in this field and have been kind enough to join us for this program. I'd like to introduce Dr. Alicia Morgans, who is Associate Professor of Medicine at the Harvard Medical School and Medical Director of Survivorship Program at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, and Dr. Kelly Stratton, who's Associate Professor in the Department of Urology at the Stevenson Cancer Center, University of Oklahoma Health Sciences Center. Uh, Alicia, Kelly, first of all, uh, thank you so much to both of you for taking a little bit of time out of your day to join me.
0: Thank you so much for the invitation.
2: Yes, thank so, you.
1: Maybe we'll we'll just start off, and you know, I, the, in my preamble there, I said you know the the show title is systemic therapies for metastatic, hormone sensitive, and then castrate resistant prostate cancer. So let me maybe start with the the easy stuff first, which is I think what frankly a lot of urologists will see much more commonly right out of the gate, which is um, metastatic hormone sensitive prostate cancer, and and. Maybe give us uh, a few of the the key points maybe regarding therapy, the standard of care for therapy right now, and what else we should perhaps be doing um,
2: in this patient population yeah that's that's a great question so the um, the changes in the metastatic hormone sensitive landscape have really been rapid, and you know it, it's it's taken a bit of time to to get our bearings really but you know when you look at patients who present they're metastatic androgen deprivation therapy alone is not felt to be an appropriate treatment option so we're now looking at intensifying treatment with the addition of other agents like advanced anti-androgen drugs or chemotherapy or the combination of both chemotherapy and AR targeted agents so from that perspective there's a big shift in how we're approaching these patients, um, going beyond just the initial uh, uh, loop loop glide or uh, androgen deprivation therapy and kind of moving into that advanced landscape.
0: I I would just piggyback on that and say that um, it is it is so different today than it was 10 years ago. And about 10 years ago, maybe a little less, um, we learned the charted data and then the stampede data that came right, right after that, that helped us understand that ADT plus chemotherapy was more effective for patients than ADT alone. And since that time, we've had study after study that tell us that ADT alone is the loser. It's really the loser when it comes to metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. If you combine it with anything, it will be better than ADT alone. So whether it's docetaxel chemotherapy, abiraterone, apalutamide, enzalutamide, or if you want to do ADT chemotherapy and add on an AR-targeted agent for a maintenance sort of perspective where you can have sort of intense upfront and then this maintenance to keep keep things under control after that intense therapy that any of those approaches will be better than ADT alone and i think you know the way i see it as a medical oncologist even the patients that end up in my clinic which are usually that's an older patient population it's a patient population with comorbidities for most of those patients i can do at least something more than ADT alone um, there have been patients where you know i've questioned should i even start ADT Uh, And that's a population where I would say ADT alone is probably enough if you start anything. But if I'm going to do the harm of causing, you know, all the side effects of ADT alone, adding on at least an AR targeted agent is just such a minimal increment. It, it, from my perspective, for most patients is always going to be the right thing to do.
1: So maybe um, in that vein, talk to me a little bit about when do you really do this sort of triplet therapy? So you know, we, we've started. We, we agree, ADT alone, really not sufficient. ADT plus anything, as you said, Alicia, better than ADT alone. Um, but then, you, when you get to sort of the other end of the spectrum, which is sort of all of these therapies, or at least multiple, if there are multiple of these therapies at the same time, um, what is the the patient reaction to that? Is it too much too soon? Um, and how well is that sort of adopted in practice?
0: So I will give the medical oncologist perspective. And then I'd love to hear Kelly's thought on this, because I think we, we come from two different areas, obviously. Um, and I have an infusion room just like on the same floor as my clinical practice. So I, I really have that easy access. Giving docetaxel is not a, not a problem for me. It is something that I do every day all the time. But that may be different for urology practice. The way that I think about triplet therapy, particularly adding docetaxel, because if you're going to add docetaxel to ADT, you might as well do a triplet. Let's just all kind of acknowledge that. If you're going to add docetaxel, if the patient's fit for chemo, you might as well add an AR targeted agent, get a triplet out of the way. Um, For those patients, um, first, I think about docetaxel as, It's not docetaxel now or or never getting chemo. For most patients where I'm thinking about this, where it's a chemo fit patient population, it's really docetaxel now or docetaxel in two years, maybe a little longer, when the AR targeted ADT combination starts to fail. Is this patient going to be more fit in two years than the patient is now, or even after a few months of trying to get disease under control, get symptom burden under control? Probably not. Probably the patient's going to be more fit now. is going to have fewer comorbidities, is going to certainly have a younger age than in two or three years. And so if I can get in six cycles now versus 10 cycles later, I will always try to do that. And I think that's especially important for patients with de novo metastatic disease and patients who have high volume metastatic disease. When I see a patient with low-volume recurrent disease, particularly older patients with multiple comorbidities, I don't think that triplet is necessarily the right thing out of the gate. But I will talk to them about it if they're chemo fit, just so that they understand that this is something that they may want to do now versus later. Um, but, but I would say that when I talk to patients about this in a medical oncology setting, and again, it's in it's at Dana Farber, so this is a place where you know we're seeing patients who are coming from our local community and we're also seeing patients who want to try to be more aggressive with their cancer treatment and I think we should acknowledge that I have not had a patient offered triplet therapy who has said that's more than I want to take on and I don't want to do that I have definitely had patients where both my recommendation and their recommendation is hey you are recovering from what was going on when you were initially diagnosed, we need to treat you for a a couple of months, maybe three, four months to try to get your disease under control, get your symptom burden under control. And then we can think about adding in chemotherapy. And that is something that happens once in a while. Um, But for the most part, patients have been very willing to, to, and open to getting treatment with chemo now because they recognize it's now or later, not now or never. But, but again, this is with all the caveats that come with being a medical oncologist, and I'd love to hear what Kelly thinks.
2: Yeah, so we continue to see patients who are, are really worried about chemotherapy, that there's, there's this heaviness that, that comes into the room when we start to mention chemotherapy. And so I, I think that patients who feel like they would never tolerate or accept chemotherapy, for those patients, um, you know, we spend a lot of time trying to get them to at least accept combined therapy, so dual treatment, uh, androgen deprivation therapy, plus an anti-androgen treatment, and, you know, I have a lot of those patients, and they, you know, grow to accept that treatment, and, and as Alicia was mentioning, many times, they, they start to feel better as they initiate that treatment there's also a lot for patients to learn as they start their advanced prostate cancer treatment. You know, what are these side effects going to do to me? How am I going to feel? Many of these things can be a challenge that we can, we can start to work our way through. And then as they start to feel better and as they start to improve, then we can consider the referral to medical oncology and the initiation of docetaxel. So I I also subdivide groups based off of their burden of disease, high volume versus low volume, Uh, much more willing to accept uh, combined anti-androgen treatment in the low volume patients. And unless they are are incapable of, of receiving chemotherapy, really encourage them throughout the course of their treatment to consider it as an option
1: So one one final question I'd sort of ask you both, uh, which I don't think we do as well, especially in the urology community as we should, is is the role of genetic germline testing in these patients with newly diagnosed metastatic prostate cancer. Maybe talk briefly about that and and sort of how that may set the stage for therapies that may be available for them um, thereafter.
0: So I actually, you know, I think many of us, most of us probably have an EMR template that we have set up for our new patients. And in my template for all new patients, I actually have a genetics line and that's there on purpose to remind me for my prostate cancer patients, I should always ask myself, is there a reason not to do genetic testing? I flip that from, is there a reason to do genetic testing? Because for a majority of my patients in advanced disease, there is no reason not to do it. So the guidelines from AUA, the guidelines from NCCN, all recommend that we do genetic germline, genetic testing for patients who have metastatic disease. And that is regardless of family history, that's the age of the patient when they are diagnosed with, with uh, prostate cancer. So anybody with metastatic disease, then we can back it up. So anybody with a high risk or very high risk localized disease, also it's recommended that they should all get germline genetic testing. So I do actually see a large number of patients who have localized disease. We have a really robust multidisciplinary practice. I've been um, actually quite fortunate and um, learned how to care for these patients because this was not a normal part of my practice in, in, past, um, in pra- past practices. And I've been really excited to do that. But that means I have a lot more patients to do this germline genetic testing. There are also populations, Ashkenazi Jewish, patients who have, um, you know, cribriform, introductal, like very high risk pathology, even if they have the sort of intermediate risk pathology, if they have family history, when it comes down to that, then they should get germline genetic testing. So again, in my practice, and I see higher risk patients and metastatic patients, my question is always, in which patients should I not do germline genetic testing? And when when it comes down to that, Jay, just, just to sort of acknowledge your comment, yes, it's for therapy, but it's also because the rate of positivity for germline mutations is actually high enough that there are enough family members who are going to then be positive, that I have had multiple patients whose daughters have been saved. Um, I, I guess I say saved, but perhaps they think of it differently. I think that, that's the word they use to me. So that's why I think of it that the way, That way, because they've gotten different screening for their for, for mammograms. They've maybe had MRIs or had conversations with their doctors and they've been BRCA positive and had early stage breast cancers identified. And and a couple who have actually had ovarian cancers, early stage, identified. This is so gratifying to me. I, I see it more in daughters. And I think that in our prostate cancer population, they're not thinking about their daughters when they're when they're getting this kind of consultation for their prostate cancer. They always think about sons, and that's important. But it's often their daughters that are going to be affected by this germline testing. So I would just encourage us to think about this. I think that, and I'd love to hear from Kelly on this, we have to have our comfort in place when we think about how do we counsel positive patients on what to do, what to do for their family, because that is going to be really important for germline testing and is not always part of our, you know, education and and treatment algorithm when we're thinking about taking care of the patient himself. This is actually about the patient, but also very much about his family.
2: Yeah, so, uh, you know, when we look at other cancers like breast cancer or ovarian cancer, there's a lot of advocacy and a lot of resources for patients, and I feel like as uh, urologists, you know, a lot of men will rely on our input to decide whether they would do something or not. And so it's imperative that we provide that support for them and encouragement to get this genetic testing, so that they can understand it. And I, I frequently see patients who, who you know, it takes a couple visits and a couple times. To encourage them and get them to uh, understand the potential benefit of genetic testing, so I agree. It's it's like who should not get genetic testing is where mm-hmm. we can start. And the more that we advocate for it, the more that we'll have patients treated similarly to the other cancers where it's more commonplace. Great.
1: So, what I'm I think what I'm going to ask you to do is now let's shift gears a little bit and let's talk about the the setting of patients with, uh, metastatic castrate resistant prostate cancer. And, and, um, I had Mike Cookson on just a few weeks ago and we talked about advanced prostate cancer. So what I'm going to maybe do is, um, ask you both to talk about a few, maybe new combinations, new therapies out there, um, and really hone in on some of those spaces. So I think the first would be, um, PARP inhibitors and, and, uh, How do uh, PARP inhibitors play into the role? When is it the appropriate setting? How do you combine them with any sort of AR-directed therapy? Um, Maybe start with that, Uh, PARP inhibitors and and castrate-resistant prostate cancer. And how how do we we look at that as a treatment um, mechanism?
2: So again, we go back to uh, the genetic testing and how helpful it could be. And in addition to germline testing, somatic testing can be very beneficial to patients and identifying who may benefit from these additional treatments like PARP inhibitors. And so, you know, I think that this is a continuation of the evolving landscape that's starting with hormone sensitive and moving into the uh, castrate-resistant prostate cancer patients. So it's really um, something that we started long ago with the immunotherapies like Stipulosal T. And then we moved into pembrolizumab and now into PARP inhibitors. And so understanding who could benefit from these treatments and then coupling them with the AR-targeted treatment at the appropriate time is really how we can maximize benefit for these patients. We had done it before with uh, insolutamide and, and, uh, and abiraterone. And I think now we can do it with the PARP inhibitors like Olaparib. So I I, I encourage all these patients that we see to try to make sure that they always remain eligible for all the potential treatment options possible. And this this coupling of genetic testing and then um, uh, you know uh, immunotherapy, or I'm sorry, uh, the coupling of genetic testing and uh, DDR mutation targeted treatments that can be added to anti-androgen treatments is really how we maximize benefit for these patients.
1: So so Alicia, are, are there any specific trials that, that folks should know about of, of using these PARP inhibitors and, and, and in conjunction uh, with some of these AR-directed therapies?
0: Yeah, I, I think it's important for everybody to to hear about some of the most recent data. And just to build on what Kelly said, half of the DNA repair defect alterations that we're going to be able to target are identified in germline and half are identified in somatic testing. So we really need to do both germline and somatic testing to make sure that we have a full understanding of what patients are eligible for. There have been multiple studies actually very recently reported. And so I think it's, it's wonderful that we're highlighting these. These are not necessarily practice changing, but practice be on the lookout type studies that are based, uh, the primary endpoints are radiographic progression-free survival. So um, again, keep that in mind. These are not overall survival endpoint um, studies that have been done. So for patients who have not been exposed to abiraterone or another AR targeted agent in the metastatic hormone sensitive setting, these studies were designed around the first-line MCRPC setting, and it's the PROPEL and the magnitude trial. So patients could not have been exposed to AR-targeted agents in addition to ADT in that earlier state. They could have had a small amount of chemotherapy per charted, so the six cycles in the metastatic hormone-sensitive state. But in first-line MCRPC, they were randomized in the PROPEL trial to the combination of abiraterone and rib. And in the magnitude trial to the combination of abiraterone and niraparib, so two different PARP inhibitors, and they were followed, these groups were followed for a radiographic progression free survival endpoint. In Propel, they actually had an all comers design where anybody could get in, they could have DNA repair defects, they didn't have to have them. And what they found is that there was a, an overall radiographic progression free survival benefit to the overall population, all comers population, when they looked at the combination of abiraterone and elaparib versus abiraterone alone, which I think is really striking because abiraterone as a, as a, as a combination with ADT and first line MCRPC in patients who haven't had an AR targeted agent uh, before, that is a standard of care. That's a very, very um, powerful control arm. So to add, laparib to that. For an all-comers population, really exciting that we saw a benefit in terms of RPFS, and that actually held up at an interim analysis that was, um, or or a subsequent analysis that was presented at ESMO, so just actually a number of weeks ago. Um, Magnitude also showed a benefit to the combination of abiraterone and niraparib versus abiraterone alone in the first-line MCRPC setting, but only in patients who had HRR-positive alterations, they had two arms, two cohorts here. One was HRR positive, prospectively identified. One was HRR negative, again prospectively identified. The futility analysis in the HRR negative population did not pan out. It was futile to add niraparib to abiraterone in that HRR negative population when compared to abiraterone alone. Again, extremely powerful control arm, so I'm not surprising that we might not see a difference. So only a benefit in magnitude when we combine niraparib with abiraterone in the HRR-positive population. But both of these groups are showing that in patients who have poor prognosis because they have BRCA2 mutations, for example, when we add a PARP onto our abiraterone in first line M- MCRPC, we might be able to make actually a quite meaningful difference. And brca was another study that was all patients selected with HRR alterations combining olaparib, abiraterone versus Abiraterone alone versus elaparib alone, again, showed a really nice synergistic potentially or at least additive benefit of the combination versus abi or elaparib as single agents in that metastatic CRPC setting. So really exciting.
1: So Kelly, I'm, I'm going to now sort of pick up on something you mentioned a little bit earlier. Uh, mm-hmm. Even as we started talking about the PARP inhibitors, we talked a little bit about you know immunotherapy and the state of immunotherapy or uh, metastatic CRPC. And you mentioned CIPLIS-LT and certainly Pembrolizumab. Maybe talk to us about maybe both of those uh, and, and maybe one after the other. Um, you know, what's the date on CIPLIS-LT? What's the, the, the patient populations? And then, and then how do you use some of the somatic and germline testing to inform you when, when you know, Pembrolizumab would, would be an appropriate choice for somebody with CRPC?
2: Sure. Yeah, sipilusol T is is a cellular based immune therapy that was shown to extend overall survival in the IMPACT trial, which involved patients with metastatic, castrate resistant prostate cancer who were asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic. And when we look at that group, you know, people who had lower PSA levels tended to draw more benefit. And interestingly, there's also been some indication that it may work in minority groups like African-American men to an even better degree than others. So, you know, the Sibulacil-T as a, as a treatment option is, number one, it's, it's a lot different than what patients have typically seen to that date. So it's a shift in gears where we can provide patients with just a, a break from maybe the other treatments that they've received, and we can use something that is immune-based. Uh, patients are often excited to be a part of this treatment. Uh, it involves leukophoresis where their uh, antigen-presenting cells are taken and then treated to activate them against prostate-specific antigen, and then given back to them three days later. Uh, it's a six-week treatment course, generally very well tolerated, and so I think that it's a great option for patients. They, you know, are very interested to be provided that as a treatment after usually they've been on hormonal treatment, potentially chemotherapy or other anti-androgen drugs. So when you look at, at, at that, in addition to pembrolizumab, which has an agnostic uh, indication for patients who have MSI high tumors or have mutations in MSH2, MSH6, MLH2, or PMS2, uh, that, that is another treatment option that's available. Again, these are from genetic testing that's done typically on the tumor. As urologists, we have the opportunity sometimes to provide that tissue in a very meaningful way, for instance, in patients who may have tumors that we identify still in their prostate, or maybe we remove their prostate at some point in time. So we can certainly be helpful in identifying tissue that can be sent for sequencing. Um, And that's all in addition to the germline testing that we were talking about earlier. So the combination of germline and somatic testing can really open the windows for treatment in patients who are progressing and are, are castration resistant.
1: So, Alicia, you know, I, I feel like just uh, at the beginning of this year, all of the, uh, uh, the hot craze was that you know, we, we now had access to PSMA-based imaging much more readily than when we used to have the gallium available with Polarify now maybe talk to us a little bit about um, how the evolution of uh, radiology-based studies, radiopharmaceuticals, or Theranostics, if you wanna call it that, has really evolved and and how do we use some of this PSMA-based imaging and PET imaging to localize tumors to actually maybe deliver therapy and obviously not just PSMA, but maybe some of the other data on radium and and, um, other sorts of uh, radio-pharmaceutical therapies.
0: Sure. You know, because this is a, a sort of a metastatic disease podcast, we can kind of focus in that area. But I think it's important to acknowledge that PSMA PET imaging, whether it's gallium based, DCFPYL based, that PSMA PET imaging is used in so many patients now with localized disease, high risk, very high risk, even unfavorable intermediate if we're following the NCCN guidelines. Um, that I am ordering these routinely and really it is affecting care either giving peace of mind to patients with localized disease or altering their treatment plan because now we know that there are um, some areas of nodal involvement that we're either going to attack surgically or we are going to uh, sort of alter by now treating with um, radiation and systemic therapy. In, In any event, in the metastatic setting, PSMA pets are being used to identify patients for PSMA lutetium treatment. So lutetium PSMA-617 was a a, a radiopharmaceutical radioligand therapy that was developed, tested in the VISION trial as its registration trial, which was a large phase three international study that demonstrated that lutetium PSMA-617 improved overall survival as well as radiographic progression-free survival in patients when used in combination with best standard of care versus best standard of, of care alone in patients with MCRPC who had already had progression of disease on an AR-targeted agent and docetaxel at a minimum. In that trial, patients often had multiple uh, um, lines of therapy well beyond AR-targeted agent and docetaxel. So the patients that I put on that study um, really had, in most cases, CIPT, radium, AR-targeted agent, docetaxel, cabazitaxel in many cases. And, and the best standard of care in my patient population was generally and across this this trial, generally either an alternate A or targeted agent in combination with lutetium or a steroid or a pain medicine. So really best standard of care was. Basically a placebo um, for many of these patients, but because this was because they were very much at the end of the line in terms of their treatment. The overall survival benefit to adding letician PSMA 617 to best supportive care or best standard of care versus best standard of care alone was approximately four and a half months, four months or so. You know, this is what we've seen in study after study in this late line MCRPC setting. I think that there was an initial buzz around, is that enough? Is that enough for us to actually make a change? And I would say absolutely so, because these patients are facing nothing or they're facing this. And in many cases, when we use this drug earlier, then we can actually get a much more robust response, a better and more durable response to therapy and and longer uh, disease control. Importantly, the label is actually, patients just have to have MCRPC with progression of disease on an AR targeted agent and docetaxel chemotherapy. And right now we are really using PSMA pets to identify patients who express PSMA on their tumor and then are therefore eligible after those other lines of therapy to receive lutetium PSMA 617. The biggest challenge that we have in giving this treatment is one, we need a PSMA pet to identify patients who are eligible. They do have to have that expression. We wouldn't want the majority of their disease to actually not express PSMA protein on the cell surface because those patients are not going to respond in most cases, or we don't think they'll respond to this treatment. And We wouldn't want to waste time on a treatment that's ineffective and that can absolutely cause cytopenias and marrow depression because of the way it works as a radioligand therapy if it's not going to be effective in treating their disease. So that takes time to get that PSMA PET. Then we also know that we have to get a slot in line, at least in my institution, because there are relatively limited doses available. So we're waiting um, to make sure that we have doses available, that we can not only give the first dose, but every dose along the way, every six weeks, patients get a dose up to a total of six cycles. So we have to get all those logistics in place. But for patients who have access, who have PSMA-PET positive disease, who have had progression it can be a really helpful treatment. It is relatively well tolerated, a little xerostomia. So this does actually target salivary glands too because of PSMA expression on salivary glands. So we do have a little bit of that, but generally mild fatigue, cytopenias that usually resolve some xerostomia, but people feel pretty well and it can be really, really effective in disease control. So I guess your question is really about PSMA PET, theranostics more generally. I think that PSMA pets are useful across the spectrum right now of patients with prostate cancer, and it gives us access to Letitian PSMA 617, which has been really helpful for some patients. We're just dealing with some logistics and getting drug to patient right now. I do expect that that will resolve with time, but it's a really wonderful thing to add to our treatment armamentarium.
1: So, so our, our toolbox has gotten. You know, we you you you've highlighted a lot of different new therapies we have available, and so the nice thing is the 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 toolbox is a lot deeper, which means we have a lot more treatment. So the and and Alicia hit on some of this. You know, she talked about some of the side effects of, uh, lutetium PSMA six one seven, the cytopenia, the xerostomia. Kelly, maybe take us through briefly, because I think this is also, whether it's prescribed by medical oncologists or urologists, these are the, some of the things are the side effects that we will all see, right? Patients will call, they will talk to us about these. Maybe talk to us a little bit about some of the side effects of, you know, either the PARP inhibitors or maybe immunotherapy with pembrolizumab. And obviously, Alicia, you you must see a lot of this in your practice, of course. Uh, Happy to have you weigh in as well.
2: Sure. So, you know, immunotherapy is really changing the landscape of prostate cancer and other urologic cancers as well. So we're going to see patients who are on immunotherapy treatments regardless of, of which patient we're seeing and which day. And so the patients who are on, for instance, pembrolizumab can develop some immune related side effects that we would want to be vigilant of regardless of whether we're prescribing the drug or just following the patient in their routine care. Those would include things like rash or thyroid dysfunction, also uh, uh, inflammatory reactions like colitis or pneumonitis. So, you know, if we see a patient who has a new side effect that is somewhat obscure and potentially immune related, we could be the people who identify that immune related side effect to their pembrolizumab treatment. Uh, for these patients, many times treatment uh, hold and then potentially steroid can reduce or, re- or reverse the toxicity, and some of them can, can continue their treatment. So it's important to identify them early so that they may be able to continue with their treatment later down the road. Um, as far as the PARP inhibitors, typical side effects can include things like cytopenia and GI uh, changes, diarrhea, uh, nausea. You know, some of those things we are accustomed to monitoring with androgen deprivation therapy, and then some of them we're not as accustomed to treating, like thrombocytopenia or uh, uh, neutropenia. So, you know, partnering with your medical oncology colleagues can help uh, treat these side effects that may that maybe you see or maybe are involved in these treatments that patients are getting in our clinics.
0: I would, I would agree with that. I think, you know, really to emphasize with PARP inhibitors, it is okay. And and partnering with medical oncology is, is a really great way to do this. If you have access to that team, it is okay to dose reduce for some of those, especially the cytopenias. We do have to be very, very cognizant of those. We don't want patients to develop really, um, you know, refractory anemias, thrombocytopenias, certainly don't want to um, impair their immune systems, especially in today's day and age. So uh, monitoring those um, CBCs is going to be really, really important. That's actually important for lutetium too, um, because it's, it's interesting, especially with patients who have a high burden of marrow involvement. And, and you may not even know it. Uh, it. Interestingly, I've had patients who have pretty uh, refractory cytopenias uh, unexpectedly, I didn't realize they had such marrow involvement. MRIs before treatment, PSMA PET scans before treatment didn't fully characterize the degree of burden of of uh, marrow involvement. So watch for those cytopenias on both of those agents, and you may have to delay a dose. You may have to dose reduce when it comes to PARP, um, but it's important just to keep safety first and, and top of mind. Pembrolizumab, usually for our prostate patients, it, I think really um, we're fortunate because in many cases, obviously we're using this as a single agent. We're not using you know combinations of ipilimumab and nivolumab, which can cause more of these, um, these immune-related side effects. But sometimes patients have adrenal insufficiency or colitis, and it might just seem like, wow, they're having a few more bowel movements or they they're a little more tired than normal, work it up, talk to your, talk to your team, do some lab tests. And if you're really concerned, put the patient in the hospital, let that inpatient team really work it up because these can be really tricky side effects and they can be so hairy subclinical that sometimes it takes a team who's really kind of skilled at immunotoxicity To to figure it out. And luckily, I think our hospital systems have become really adept because we use so much immunotherapy, not just in GU cancers, but across cancer in general, that they're they're figuring it out and they can be helpful, too. But partnerships, as Kelly mentioned, with medical oncology um, and having access to those um, those those teams and and pulling the trigger and saying to the patient, you got to go and got to get a workup. It's going to be important. Again, safety first.
1: That's great. Well, I, I really want to thank you both. That was uh, really a, a very comprehensive uh, 30, 35 minutes. And I think you, you you addressed a topic area that I think is, to be honest, frankly, intimidating for most urologists, um, especially as there's more therapies coming out there. But I think you really helped sort of put them in context. And, and I think some of the take-homes were super. So I really want to thank Alicia, Kelly, thank you, first of all, so much for... Uh, The time on this friday afternoon it's it's, uh, obviously greatly appreciated by both myself as well as our audience
0: well thank you for the opportunity it is always my pleasure to do whatever dr stratton is doing i'm always happy to partner
2: thank you this is a great time it's always good to hear from dr morgan's as well
1: uh, for our audience, again, thanks for your attention. If you'd like any more information on anything we've discussed today, please visit us at slash university. Uh, Alicia, Kelly, you both have a great weekend.
0: You too.
2: See ya.